Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. In this episode, we dive deep into the history of one of our intrepid co-hosts, Eric Baker, father, partner, teacher, Chinese medical practitioner, and so much more. He highlights where his life began, talks about cemeteries and poor farms, and having an awareness of violence, racism, and sexism at a very young age. He also discusses his love for Don Quixote and his experience suffering through long periods of physical pain and the flaws of the Western medical system. He asks, what is psychologically healthy for people? And talks about his desire to learn from numerous traditions as a means to help himself and other people. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Hey, fellow GNTers, those of us who like our spirituality with a twist. So definitely a different kind of episode. Daniel and I finally wanted to follow up an idea we've had since the very beginning of doing this project, which is a kind of a getting to know your hosts episode or the TMI episode. Uh, and it just kind of seemed like a good idea. Uh, so that's what we were thinking about, right, Daniel? <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, we had talked about this originally. And then I had somebody who reached out and gave me some advice. And they were like, oh, I, I know you, but I don't know uh, the other person who's talking very well. And I'm sure Eric probably got much of the same yeah. um, critique. <laughs> so we're going to take uh, so, some time and, and we're going to do what we do for our guests and ask them personal questions. <laughs> I completely put them on the spot in ways that they weren't expecting. That's correct. So yeah. uh, we're going to start with one Eric Baker and uh, he'll, he'll do his thing and, and I'll, I'll kind of interview him as he unfolds the beauty that is his mind. That was really funny because when I was thinking of trying to put this together, it was the realization like, well, this is awkward to figure out how to do it. And then it really was what you were saying. We ask people to do this anytime they come on uh -huh. completely unprepared. I mean, we let them know. Yeah. Yeah, there hasn't been a guest on where we haven't been like, yeah, we're going to ask you about your life in the beginning and what led you to where you're at. <clears throat> and I guess part of our idea was this is like, um, it's important to the, to the concept of what we're doing, because I, I think our idea is when you, when you hear about how other people find their way to where they are, it helps you learn about yourself and maybe how you're going to find your own way. So that's kind of our idea and the whole, the whole thing. And so why not turn that mirror on ourselves, I guess, right? <laughs> right. And, and I think it helps to build a connection for those people who don't know either of us individually or, you know, or if they only know one person or the other person. So it, it gives the words that we, we share a little bit more, I think, uh, depth. I think it like kind of fits into our model. I mean, I definitely listen to some podcasts where you don't know too much about the hosts, yeah. but uh, you know, we're trying to be personal. We're trying to really share our own experiences of these, mm -hmm. of how we try to apply these things to our actual lives, the philosophies and spiritual practices that we're involved with. So yeah, 
for us, it's probably unavoidable. <laughs> Correct. Well, and, and to be honest, though, this is a practice in, in a number of traditions is sort of writing the story of your life, writing your memories down, right? And you can call it, they call it remembrance in, in some practices, they call it uh, recapitulation in some other practices, where you just sort of, you know, take time on a regular basis to write down all the various uh, things in your life that have occurred that have shaped you molded you, it's kind of like a journal, I guess, in a sense, but more like larger life experiences. And so the fact that, you know, the, the, taking the time to go through this is a bit therapeutic, even in its own, in its own right. That was very, very true for how I tried to think about it once the idea came that we were going to do it. I thought, well, I think I'm going to try to tell a story and I'm going to try to understand, you know, my own story in doing this, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is therapeutic. You know, and there's some of the things I had, I obviously had thought about, there was nothing maybe I hadn't ever thought about, but thinking about it all over again and kind of putting it together in a way to try to talk about it, you know, for this and between you and me, I thought, well, this is actually pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think along the way, at least, you know, I, we both do this in our own ways. But for me, I kept yeah. thinking, well, you know, I'm thinking about this, but maybe some of the things I'm thinking of are things that listeners can think of for themselves too. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, uh, <clears throat> how did this thing affect my life? Mm. Okay. So I decided to first look at like setting of the story, mm. like kind of where I started. <laughs> and as I was thinking about it, it was sort of, yeah, I think everyone has this kind of a, a starting point their own setting that they grew up in. And, and for me, this was influential. And I thought, well, for, you know, influential for a lot of people, right? The setting where you come from. Uh, so for me, this is very distinctive. I grew up in this little town called Oak Forest, Illinois. It's officially a village, mm. you know, the village of Oak Forest, because its governmental structure was village-like. And um, it's on the outskirts of Chicago, but it's enough on the outskirts where it's really kind of separate. And probably if you go back in the time machine, it was legit separate. So it's a little... It's a little place and it's probably the best way to describe it is it's a perfect setting for like an old school Stephen King horror novel or something <laughs> like that. It's <laughs> like perfect for that. So if there were some, if I was a kid and there were, I found out there were some vampires or some zombies or like some killer clowns that were also giant spiders from outer space or something like that. Is that what it is? I can't remember exactly what happens I have, in that I, thing. You just, you literally just spoiled it for me and anybody who has no idea what it is. So. <laughs> well, it's been out since the nineties. So yeah, what can you do? I can't remember. The episode needs spoiler alerts for old Stephen King novels. <laughs> but I think, I think, I think he's a, I think he's a giant spider from outer space. Who's also a killer clown. Okay. Sorry if I gave it away. I don't um, know. I can't remember. Is it Penny Whistle? Is that Pennywise. Pennywise. Is it Penny Pennywise? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pennywise Dollar Foolish. I Dollar Foolish or something. <laughs> That's the other clown. Dollar Foolish. <laughs> His enemy. Yeah, and then there are the killers. Their planet. second cousin is Fifty Cent. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Chicago reference too. He's legit Chicago. Fifty Cent, right? No, no, yeah. he's new. He's Brooklyn. Is he really? Yeah. No shit. I thought he was Chicago. Okay, then I'm just wrong. All right, no Who are Chicago peeps then? Uh, do or die, twist a chance uh, the rapper, chance. Kanye West, R. R. Kelly. Chance the rapper. That's what I was thinking of. I can yeah, continue, yeah. but we'll. <laughs> yeah, Kanye. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So I grew up in this little place called Oak Forest, Illinois, and it's it's a it's a kind of a bizarre place to grow up in, and it's the setting. So I guess as other people are thinking about, you can think about your own settings. But it was it's notorious for a few things. One is it has one of the most haunted cemeteries in all of the United States. Oh, I like it. It's called Bachelor's Grove Cemetery, which weirdly enough, people would go there and party and get drunk. And I didn't really ever do that. So I don't know if I've ever walked through that cemetery. I thought about going there with my daughter at some point and just like traipsing through. Uh, but there were actual pictures in the Chicago Tribune, which is the big local, one of the big local newspapers of like 
uh, back in the day of like a mysterious photo of a white figure, a female figure, like in the cemetery. It was actually in the news. Mm. <laughs> so uh, it has all this kind of anecdotes of all these haunted figures that go through the cemetery. And it's a cemetery that has all the, 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 it's all the bodies of the laborers who were dying, like building the railroad that went to the town. So it's the bachelor's grove. It's bachelors because those were these kind of immigrants who were, uh, you know, didn't have their families with them and they just died and ended up being put into this graveyard. A lot of Irish, I'd imagine. Germans, apparently. Okay. Yeah. So it's also the place, uh, just for the setting of it, of what they used to call a poor farm. This is what the town is kind of like all about. And this was a, a thing they had in the United States where if you had, you know, sick relatives or mentally ill relatives or relatives who had substance abuse problems that couldn't be handled, you would just send them out to these poor farms, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a hospital. It's a, in the town itself, it's this huge building set off from the main road that leads into the town. And uh, it's where these people were just sent to die, essentially. Mm. And, you know, back from the road, there's these fields of like unmarked graves. So I was like looking back to see like, you know, how many people were there? And there's like 100,000 people or more like buried in all these unmarked graves in these like fields in the town. <laughs> so that's the town. Across the street, there was a little friary where there was these monks in the full on like brown robes with a little monk haircut, the tonsors. And sometimes you'd see them walking back and cross across the street. So it's just this strange little town kind of on the outskirts of Chicago, kind of like built around this kind of creepy reasons. <laughs> and that's where I grew up. Um, we had uh, Glenn Mullinan, Lama Glenn, uh, to all of his students like us who like uh, love and appreciate him so much. And uh, he had his story of like, trying to like get reincarnated into the, I think he said Red Rock Pure Land of Tibetan Buddhism, but he ended up by Red Rock Lake in uh, Canada. <laughs> he should have studied yeah. harder. <laughs> yeah, the spiritual GPS went a little wonky, I think is his line. Um, or in any case, that's what it is. So like for me, when I heard that story from years ago, I started thinking, okay, what makes people be born in the place where they're at? Because it's kind mm. of a funny story, but there is an odd directionality thing. How do you end up where you are? And, and you know, who, I mean, I'm not saying this is true, but for myself, I sort of had the thought, the practices that I ended up as an adult really liking were all built around kind of like the Shiva practices, the Shaivite practices. And, you know, Shiva is, um, I even do like, I'm interested in the Buddhist versions of this, the Buddhist versions of the Shiva thing. And he's kind of like the guy who um, is outside of society, kind of in these places they used to call the charnel grounds where, uh, you know, in India, you'd go away from the main city and the charnel grounds is where you would dump the bodies to die, you know. But there are people who would go and meditate in these places. And, and you know, when, he, when Lama Glenn was talking about it, I was like, yeah, I guess that could be me. I was like thinking, I'll go to the outskirts of Chicago and to the charnel grounds where all the cool tantric people are. Mm. And I'll get born over there. And it was just like, whoops, <laughs> didn't work out. That's what it intended. But it is kind of like a Shiva place to be born. And I don't know, as an adult, that, that's definitely ended up being my thing. So, Well, you just made your town the cooler than it's ever thought it ever was. It's a weird place. I want to have uh, George Saunders on. the. He's one of the great American writers now. And he actually grew up in that town, too. So if, I oh. ever, if we can get him on, ultimately, I'm going to reach out to him soon. Like sure. uh, his fellow Oak Forester. So talk about that a little bit. Um, but anyways, there's a whoops for me. <laughs> on the spiritual GPS. Mm. Um, but for people listening, I mean, it's worthwhile to figure out where you were born and, you know, uh, how did you end up there? You know, uh, in Buddhist thought, they had this idea of what they call throwing karma, 
the karma that kind of leads you to be born in a certain place and then you're going to have certain experiences and and uh i don't think in I don't know how you think about this, Daniel. I don't think about those things as being predestined per se, but there's a definitely like an energetic vibe into where you end up. And there's things that you can learn, I think, by reflecting back on that. Yeah. I don't think mm -hmm. there's like a, 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 like a, a plan where every single detail of people's lives are written around, written down. I don't tend to think that way spiritually. I know some people do. Um, but I think there's a general thing that you can learn from looking at where you're at. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So anyways, for me, I wound up in like, I think it's fair to say like Trump's America mm. and um, former, we don't formerly yeah, before Trump existed, but it was, yes. it was warming up for him Okay, <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. It was getting itself ready. Okay. Um, and again, we're not doing a political show ever. And I think it's good that we don't do that, but I mean, I think it's kind of gives a feeling for where, where it is and what the place is like. And sure. You know, it's still like that. Now I was talking in prep for this to Justin Key, who was on our episodes on reincarnation. Mm -hmm. who's an old friend of mine from the same neck of the woods. And, and Justin was like, yeah, you know, like he goes back and he checks on people from the town and their QAnoners and their whatever. Mm -hmm. Shout out to our conspiracy theory episodes. Really, really well done. If I may say so. Yeah, myself. we're going to do a lot of like, a uh, lot of like internal episode plugging, I guess. <laughs> plug it, plug it. <laughs> yeah. So I think it like it affected me kind of deeply. I, I was thinking about that as I was prepping it. And I, I've thought about this a lot. It was kind of a weird place to grow up because on the one hand, I became sensitized pretty young in ways that are funny. And again, everyone can look back at their own lives and figure out what was hitting them when they were younger. It's kind of interesting. But I definitely was aware of like racism and sexism and homophobia, like really young. I became aware that there was a lot of that going on. You know, so even in grade school, I was like highly sensitized to those points. And in part, it was just a violent place mm. in a weird way. It was the kind of place you could be walking home from school and some kid you didn't know would rush out of the woods and try to kick you in the teeth and like knock your teeth out, like for no reason. It was just that. So when Justin and I were talking about it, it was funny because we were just talking about this environment, which is just kind of Hobbesian random violence all against the all for like no reason mm. <laughs> like that was part of it you could be at the playground and some older kids would just come up and beat the shit out of you for like no apparent reason you know uh so stuff like that was going on all the time which you know probably other people have experienced too and i have a lot of empathy for just this it's certainly not violent in the way that like neighborhoods in america could be violent but it was violent you know um in this bizarre random way that those kinds of neighborhoods can be violent in but then there also was like this thing where you could really tell that there was these undercurrents of these other isms. And uh, my best friend growing up was a guy named Dino. And he, he was just an outsider in a way, you know, uh, in a town like that. You know, he's a Greek guy, but he was just very, he was very Middle Eastern looking, you know. And, it, you know, Daniel, it's funny because it, it occurred to me in doing this, it was like looking at like, you know, major friendships in my life. Uh, in relationships that have gone places that are important, like us doing this podcast together, that were with these dudes who were of you know Middle Eastern descent. You know, it's kind of interesting. I never thought about that before. Yalla. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, so this is my best friend growing up. And I had like probably a crew of us, you know, but he was my one of my besties for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was violent. And I, you know, before the pandemic and before everything, we got together, we don't see each other as much, but we got together as old friends do couple of years ago maybe 2018 maybe you know 
and we were kind of, I'd worked a 12 hour day, but we were hanging out and, you know, just talking as old friends do. We stayed up really late into the night. And he was like, he never talked about it before, but he said, you know, it was really rough because he felt like it was just a constant fight, like every day, you know? And we started talking about situations where like he had to get in a fight and break this kid's nose or like all this shit was always going down where it was violent, you know? And so I just saw this stuff. So as I was preparing the episode, there was one time we were in gym class and um, there was this gym teacher and I saw him out of the corner of my eye. We were supposed to be lined up against the wall and we were half lined up as kids are, you know, we were probably fifth or sixth graders, something like that. And uh, I saw this, this, this gym teacher like warming up in this windup, but then he like winged this 16 inch softball at my friend's head and like hit him in the head and cracked his head off the concrete wall behind us off the cinder blocks. And I don't even know how, you know, just didn't collapse onto the ground, you know? And he just was, all that shit was happening like all the time, you know? Mm. And uh, it was odd because when I think back on it, like nothing happened. I don't think we even bothered to tell anybody because it was so usual either just random acts of violence or in this case, things that were probably directed at him just because he just didn't look like the other kids in the town, you know? And we had one other really weird one where we, I had, for some reason, I had like a little bracelet with my name on it. Um, and I don't know why I cared about it. Some relative gave it to me or something. And I had lost it. And Dina was very convinced that it was on this one street <laughs> in this little town. So he was like, let's go over and ask the kids because they probably have it. And he turned out to be right. How the hell he knew that? I have no idea. But we went to this little street and the streets in Oak Forest were really oddly named. They were either named after like, uh, like I lived on the corner of Victoria Drive and Boca Rio, which makes no sense. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like, elegant though. You it's know? Queen Victoria and it's like mouth of the river, but they forgot the Del, Boca Del Rio. It was just a street with a giant retention pond and ditch running through it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways it was like that so the kids like the street we had to go was a street called oakland avenue hey so we went to oakland avenue and we're, we're like dina was like let's get this thing back so he's asking these kids about it and then this big mob of kids started to form and it was like maybe like 15 to 20 kids and then they just started chasing us down the street so we were running down boca rio like in full sprint and i got curious in prepping for this because i was like how long was that run and it was like i think they chased us for half a mile uh -uh all the way to my my parents house because we were kind of blocked off from his house which was actually closer anyways we ran it was kind of like the what is it the indiana jones scenes where he's running and there's like a mob following him you know and uh we got to my house and kind of ran up the little driveway there's a little hill into the house and you know dino took it really seriously so um all these kids were like perched outside the house <laughs> kind of like the end of that old school movie the warriors remember that one daniel mm -hmm. the, the it's like this <laughs> it was that come out and play that's right so they were doing that to us if you know the movie it's a it's a movie about street gangs in new york and this gang gets trapped in the end you know by this other gang and the guy's outside with these little bottles on his hand clinking them clink clink warriors come out and play so do you know i are inside <laughs> these They're kids clanking, are all outside clanking, clanking the bottles <laughs> howling and like whatever Dino grabs uh, like a giant knife. <laughs> oh, he's like, he's me for sure. Cause I've done that. Yeah. He ran down onto the steps and we're like fifth grade, sixth grade or something. Yep. Oh, maybe younger. Maybe we're like fourth. And he's like waving this knife at these kids, like full on like Norman Bates psycho knife that he's on the porch <laughs> like, threatening these kids with. So eventually the mob dispersed, but it was like shit like that. 
So if that gives any feeling, <laughs> it was like that. It was like either random acts of violence or things that obviously were tied into, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia. And, and I think like for me, like when I was older, and we'll talk about this more, I guess, as this goes along, but like I would be friends with gay kids and, you know, that was going to cause you a lot of shit. So I think I just got really highly sensitized to this kind of young, you know, and I think I carried that with me into my adult life. It really bothered me. Mm-hmm. All of it, racism, mm-hmm. sexism, homophobia. I just like it clicked in me. Mm. Like I think growing up in an environment like that, because I saw it up close and personal, and I just developed this really, I mean, understandable deep antipathy. Antipathy, but it's just it's really deep in me. All right. So okay. So for me, the other thing I thought was important to talk about, and this is kind of an interesting idea for maybe other people too, was uh, kind of like the archetypal thing. Because I definitely had, you know, Carl Jung has this theory of the archetypes, you know, these kind of deeper, sometimes almost like mythic or fairy tale or, you know, uh, transcendent figures that kind of seem to capture your imagination, right? And I definitely had something like that. When I grew up, one of the big things was I was just fascinated by like Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a huge thing for me. I was way into Don Quixote. And this is, I was like, maybe four or five years old side uh, note eric a really yeah. great comic would be donkey hote you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um so yeah i was like it's one of those things i don't know if you have one of these daniel but it'd be interesting when we flip the script on this you know maybe you got something like this going on too and uh there was a guy i knew who kind of had this thing about um looking for this in your life he was a fellow acupuncturist he was also an OB guy but was really interested in Jungian psychology and he was like you know when you look in your life you find an archetype like that it's really interesting I think for him it was Pinocchio which I never fully got Hmm. what that meant to him but it obviously meant something to him Hmm. so for me it was Don Quixote and by like a weird bit of like what you would call synchronicity if we're talking about Carl Jung in Oak Foods which was the major one of the major grocery stores in this small little village where I grew up, they had a giant mural of Don Quixote. Oh, wow. So I'd go with my mom and it was just there. It was him and Sancho Panza and the windmill in the background. And it was like, hmm. Um, and I was really into this. There's like an old school musical that my parents had the, had the album for because it would have been like an old school 33, right? Mm. And, um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, Man of La Mancha. So I would listen to this thing over and over again and like knew all the words of the song. I guess I still like Spanish music <laughs> from that time, but it kind of affected me. And there's something really strong about those archetypal things. And um, I'll probably try to load it at the end of the episode, but there's a, like, I would listen to this album and I had this uh, like little hobby horse that I would ride and I would pretend I was Don Quixote. So my godparents had gotten me like a little like Ranger Rick kind of hat. It was supposed to be a Ranger hat. And I popped it out to look like a conquistador's helmet, and I would ride on, <laughs> ride on my little toy horse. <laughs> Weird, but it's true. So let Absolutely me. True. So let me uh-huh. ask then: um, Do you think that 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 sign of or that that mural of the Don Quixote affected you in such a way that you would be more drawn to it, or do you think that you just kind of put those two two things together that you were interested in? And that, yeah, and I don't know. I think there? like. In the Jung world, that's like a synchronistic occurrence, right? Mm-hmm. You have this thing going on and it also matches something in your own mind. You and I haven't had a lot in astrology, but there's some arc, like little like aspects of my astrological chart that are kind of 
quixotic aspects too. So I mm. think on some level, you can certainly think maybe it's all those things coming together. Mm. Even if it's not, it has a weird feeling on your mind. So if you're listening to this mm. and you're going, yeah, shit like that happened in my own life. Like mm -hmm. we relate. <laughs> mm -hmm. This podcast relates to you, you know, and empathizes with you because there is that feeling when things come together like that. It, who knows what the reasons are? If you don't think that there's some design in that, that's fine. But it feels profound, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When things come together in that way. That's why. So I, yeah. That's why I like Transformers and Voltron because they come together to form something <laughs> larger. <laughs> that's your archetype, the transformer archetype. For, Voltron is my archetype for sure. That's Voltron not, is the archetype. Yeah, because he could be in space. You know, transformers are sort of bound to the earth or whatever. Well, yeah, Don Quixote ain't making it to space either. So you got <laughs> you got that going on as over that archetype yeah. already. So uh, you know, space travel. Yeah, he wasn't getting his mule and his old Spanish uh, whatever beat up mare up into space. Yeah, but that mule could become a Pegasus at any moment, and then boom, now you can. Well, fly. That would make a mythic story, right? Yeah. Yeah um so okay so like the thing is in the in the uh in the version that i listened to peter o'toole old school actor was like playing the lead and he gives this really like heavy soliloquy mm. in the story and again i think maybe i'll try to pull it at the end of the episode we can use it for the outro or something if people want to hear it but sure that'd be great yeah he lays it down and like i knew this as a kid i had memorized all these words and they can listen at the end, but he has this part where he goes like, um, uh, when life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical as madness, to surrender dreams, this may be madness, to seek treasure where there's only trash, too much sanity may be madness, and the maddest of all to see life as it is and not as it should be. And like, I knew that speech as a kid and I would like do it over and over again along with the record mm. and like, I look at, yeah, you know, I've thought about that since then, you know, and I'm like, like that shit spoke to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there was a feeling I had, I think from what I was talking about before, it was violent and it was racist and sexist and homophobic and just messed up. So I kind of decided that the adult world was just a mess. I mm. seem to have concluded that really young and probably kind of crazy, like the way it is in the Don Quixote speech. And like that hasn't changed a blip in me. I think I still feel the same way, especially because underneath it, the last line is the maddest of all to see life as it is and not as it should be. I mean, that could be like my part of my mission statement and trying even to do a podcast like this or for my own, my whole career. It doesn't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the potential to be something more. And in that version of the Don Quixote story, it's kind of like Don Quixote sees the potential in people. So if you don't know the story too deep, you know, there's Sancho Panza, who's just like his squire, who's just like kind of a dude who's just amusing himself. But in another way, he is like a noble squire. He is like a good friend. You know, he sees the potential in people. And Aldonza, who's the uh, kind of the works in the tavern, but it's like a prostitute, you know, she gets abused by all the people in the town. And um, but inside, she has an incredibly noble person within her, you know. And he sees her as a noble lady and no one else sees that. But inside he sees that possibility for her. That makes sense what I'm trying to say, Daniel? Sounds like he can see the bodhisattva. I think that's right. He can see the Buddha nature. Yeah, inside of people. So I, like when I look back and I got to be Buddhist, I look back at this sort of like the mass of all to see life as it is and not as it should be. Yeah, I've been thinking about that since I was like four or something, apparently, you know? So we have these things in us, right? And so, yeah, I guess the, the piece of advice in the end might be like, 
look back at your life and see if these things aren't hidden there, right? We all had these hidden gems within us, right? Agreed. When we were young that were sitting there. Agreed. I guess kind of calling for us, right? To recognize them and maybe see them, take care of them into our adult lives, mm. you know, make them part of ourselves. I think the the sexism part was kind of big there too, just to finish that off, because there is like a pretty violent scene of Aldonza being attacked and raped by this mob. And I think that was part of the feeling too. I just, I developed like a deep intolerance of abusive people. Yeah. And that hasn't gone away either. And I think part of our show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah. The other part that I, when I was again doing the research of this, it was kind of like the the view of the world, I, I had mentioned it before, there's a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And again, I've been, I, I used him a little bit to prep for our conspiracy theory episode, internal plug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that, you know, and he makes a good point. He says, around this certain age range, 10 to 14 to 15, your view of the adult world is really crystallizing, right? Mm. And for me, it definitely crystallized around this idea that like, yeah, the adult world is definitely like messed up like seriously messed up and i'm an adult now and like i still feel the same way <laughs> i feel the adult world is messed up mm-hmm. even though i'm an adult it hasn't changed a, hasn't changed a bit i feel the exact same way which i think is a little bit for me like why i chose these spiritualities that like call that mm-hmm. i think zen calls that i think the tantras call that so that really mattered for me um yeah and i guess you know all of us who are interested in this GNT thing, you know, those Daniel and I talking about it and people who might be listening to it, you know, like we all get a chance to think about this and see how this built up for us. Mm-hmm. All right, a couple of other things um, for me as I was like, again, trying to put this together, I grew up in kind of a violent household too. So if I, you know, as I looked at this kind of honestly, what kind of built into who I am as an adult person in the TMI episode that we're doing, there was definitely like abuse in the household. So I grew up in a household with four adults and there was physical abuse by three of the four. It was kind of a violent area anyway. So I knew a lot of other kids who were abused, you know, physically or sexually, things like that were going on. So it wasn't, I don't think it really hit me the full impact of that until I was older. Eventually I'll talk about it, but I had like my psych mentor, and I'll talk about him in a little bit because he really influenced my life a lot, Michael Schnur. But yeah, I remember like talking with him. He was like, well, you know, your house is like incredibly abusive and I don't think it fully hit me. But in any case, I think for what we're doing here, for those people who've suffered those kinds of things in the household of origin, um, I can empathize with that too. You know, there's boundaries of things. There's people who've experienced worse things than I have, but like I do understand, you know, and I think it impacts on what we're trying to do. So I don't want to talk about too much, but like an example might be something like one of the adults could, I mean, it was like just shocking. You couldn't predict it. It was like an unpredictable thing. So I had this thing where I wasn't eating my eggs. I was allergic to eggs. I was probably like maybe four or five, something like that. And uh, uh, again, one of the three of the four adults just like lost it with me and uh, kind of like attacked me, ripped my mouth open, kind of grabbed the plate, took the eggs in a spatula and started like jamming the eggs down my throat with a spatula and like probably could have really hurt me, you know? Um, and I was like trying to fight back. And, um, and uh, you know, eventually I just kind of gagged up all these eggs, like, you know, but like could have choked me, obviously, you know? So it was this house of just kind of just random explosions of violence, kind of like that. 
That's the and, worst. That's the worst grandma story I've ever heard. <laughs> it wasn't my grandma. <laughs> my grandma was the one person I didn't have issues with. You hit on it in the opposite, didn't you? My grandma was the most peaceful part of the house, relatively speaking. Yeah. Everybody else, whoo, you had to be careful. Um, uh, I, you know, I, so I think like when I think about talking with people who might be listening, I still have issues maybe around my neck, you know, because um, I think when you have less salts like that in a part of the body, um, you carry those things with you. And the yeah. idea with that is clinicians, right? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. So if you're listening to this and like, you're going, oh shit, you know, I live through things like that. We kind of understand you too. Mm -hmm. I think and, in the show. And also, you know, the inability to kind of express yourself in general, but if you're in a household full of violence and, and where you have to be extremely careful about what you say and what you do, you're probably going to bite your tongue a lot more than you normally would. You're not mm -hmm. going to be able to really like express anger, frustration, even your own deeper thoughts and fear of that someone's going to take that in a wrong way. So you'll probably do a lot of swallowing of things that um, you might normally just let out but now you're not yeah, going to. It, if I look at it for myself, it was kind of interesting because I developed an awareness. My younger brother, it was interesting for me because he didn't quite have that so much. You know, I really kind of developed more of like a, I better watch what I'm saying and doing, but it still wouldn't really help you. If you grew up in a house like this, it doesn't really matter. You can never fully, you can never be perfect enough to dodge it, right? You know, you're going to screw something up. Yeah, and, unfortunately, uh, that's true. Some of it was like, like attacks against one's person in weird ways, like, one of the adults would just lose it and go into my you know, childhood bedroom. And I was a kid, you know, you're a little messy when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. And this really bothered them. And it would be rages that they wouldn't even remember doing later on. Like it was serious, like psych shit going on. And they would like topple over shelves and throw things at you, throw things at me, um, take everything and like smash them into a big pile. And then like, you know, so your whole childhood identity and just like dump them into the dumpster. And I can remember later on, like going through in the trash and trying to pick things out that hadn't been destroyed in the, in the rampage, mm. you know, so it had like, I don't know, it had like a paradoxical effect on me probably because in the end, I kind of developed this thing like, okay, this, this is my identity trying to be destroyed <laughs> mm -hmm. and I'm just not going to let that happen. So I think different people respond to different ways to these things. I think you and I who work with people who've been through rough situations, you know, you, um, we understand has different impacts on people. For me, it was probably like a, a little bit of a fuck you thing developed in me ultimately as an adult, which I probably carried through the whole way through and probably still is in a show like this because there's still a part of it's like, you know, you have to find your own truth and you mm -hmm. can't let external forces destroy you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, <clears throat> as much as there's a danger of that happening. Right. So I, you know, I empathize with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So as we go through this, like not magical mystery tour, but tragical history tour. That's right. <laughs> I'll continue the rest of it. The other big thing that probably impacted me into my adulthood was I had all these health problems. So Daniel and I obviously is both medical people. There's a deep part of, uh, you know, East Asian medicine, Chinese medicine that really understands that the emotions that you grew up with are going to impact your body a lot. So not too surprisingly, if you grew up in a kind of a rough environment like this, you get a lot of health problems, right? And um, so I was hospitalized in um, uh, seventh grade and eighth grade, you know, for uh, really bad colds and flus. And then by the time I was a teenager, I had this 
long, long battle with this appendicitis that was chronic that no one could diagnose. So basically I had this large intestine problem and, um, and, uh, and it kind of just stretched for years. It was bad enough that um, I, instead of going to like the normal four years of high school, I had to drag it out another year. So I had to go to five years of high school because I had to drop out of school for half a year of my junior year and half a year of my senior year. So it was long and, and drawn out and uh, probably in an odd way, kind of like um, a little bit pulled me back from some of the teenage years experiences because I was so sick, you know, which I suppose like I look back retrospectively had an up and a down to it because I kind of missed those experiences. But at the same time, I was like, probably never fully like enculturated into the culture somehow. Mm. <laughs> I was always kind of a little on the outside. I was on the outside anyways. But um, it probably also was something that led me to think differently about medicine and health because it became very clear to me that like there were some very arrogant doctors who were treating me that didn't understand the case and didn't seem big enough to admit that they didn't understand the case. And so it just kept dragging on like year after year. So I'd have these episodes of like, like kind of um, uh, really extreme abdominal pain that could go on for like 10, 12 hours at a time. Uh, I would sit in the bathtub and I would sing the old jazz standard, all of me, all of me, why not take all of me? <laughs> and I found that comforting for some reason. So I don't know if that helps anybody else who's listening to the show, but if it helps you out at all. Um, and uh, eventually I did have this removed. It's a long, long story, not worth it for a podcast episode, but you know, kind of, it kind of, again, led me, I think, to the idea that there were flaws in medicine, there were arrogances in medicine, there were institutional problems in medicine, and it probably directed me to kind of go through the alternative medical route that I decided to go through eventually. So, so for me, as I look at all of these kinds of experiences, what I really felt in the end was that I kind of came through it with like a, just a certain set of ideas going on in my head. One was the notion, I think of the importance of kind of just finding out what you think, is, what one thinks is psychologically healthy for oneself. You know what I'm saying, Daniel? Mm -hmm. You kind of conclude like, well, okay, I can tell now I went through a rough ride. I have my issues. Uh, let me take a step back and figure out how to make myself psychologically healthy. And what does that even really fully mean? And I got lucky because I had a psych mentor, a very kind-hearted uh, person uh, named Michael Schnur, who kind of took me under his wing once I was kind of, my health was back to more normal once I was like 19. And he kind of walked me through kind of looking at my own history and coming to understand myself. Uh, I was thinking of being a psychologist at the time. So it was a good kind of formative experience. He was kind of like putting me through what I guess was a, an informal training analysis, I guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. And, but he just helped me out. <clears throat> so it's kind of like um, just having the opportunity of having good teachers, I suppose. And he was a good teacher to me, helped me out a ton. And like really kind of helped me start to figure out, okay, what do I think is psychologically healthy? I think he was very accepting of the idea that I might have to decide that for myself, you know? So I think if you're working on that, listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that, that you're being understood here as well right? If you're trying to figure out what you think is psychologically healthy. So that was one of the things I concluded. I think the other thing I concluded was that I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn. That was a big thing too. I just decided, you know, 
part of it was psychological health and part of it was like, what do I think is true? You know, so I, I definitely like, once I got more healthy, I started to go through and study a lot. So I went to the University of Chicago, I studied physics, I kind of transferred into psychology over there. I was really interested in learning whatever I could learn from philosophy and anthropology and sociology and eventually spirituality, right? So I might not have been thinking about that exactly in that moment. But, um, you know, it was sort of like, like, I guess a kind of a pursuit of like what I thought was true. And then, you know, you can't say what's true for other people, but like maybe what's true for myself, right? Which translates, I guess, into this podcast too. You know, I think we're still, you and I both still, Daniel, are trying to figure out what we think is true, right? I think it's an ever, it's an ongoing process Mm -hmm. as you, you know, as you learn, as you practice, as you live. I mean, I know for myself anyways, that even things that I believed relatively recently can be, can be changed and they can, they can deepen also. So they can be changed and I could be like, yeah, I don't know about that. Or I can go, oh, wow, I didn't realize how little I knew about that thing. I already believed it, but now I believe that I only knew the surface. Um, And so we just get the, sometimes when we hear things, we only get the words, but that is as we live them, we get the feelings and the experiences of them. And, and it, um, that's growth, you know? So I think it's a, it's a natural aspect of being a a curious person, someone who's willing to kind of reflect on their own life, which you have been doing for a very long time, which I think probably is a, a sort of a natural talent, a natural kind of ability to take sort of the broken pieces, right? Using some of your language from earlier and trying to find the parts that are useful, you know, in, in order to find, like you said, what's psychologically healthy for you, you know, to put them back into, into the orders that you believe will give you some lesson, you know, to give your life meaning and, and how to live it in that way. Yeah, I think it's how like things to the project report we're trying to hear. Part of it is like, in a way that's personal, you know, like mm. everyone has to do this in their own way. So I think one of the goals that we have going on here would be let's present all kinds of different perspectives, mm-hmm. not just one perspective, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and things that we've learned, you know, uh, from pieces of things, maybe you don't believe the whole thing, but you learned a very important set of pieces of things that kind of help you build up your understanding. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's, we're trying to do a non dogmatic show. Right. Right. Correct. Just to help support people to go like, okay, we're all, we're all going through this in our own way. Um, you know, we'll probably come up with different variations of what we all think are true, but you know, it's, it's part of a, I guess we'll be Don Quixote about it. It's part of a quest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's part of a quest. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was a big deal for me. And I think eventually this translated into kind of a spirituality thing. Um, I was raised Catholic. Uh, Daniel and I have that in common. Um, we have our own reactions to those experiences. There were parts about being in the Catholic mass that I liked. I didn't mind a ritual. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind the atmosphere, you know, um, and the Catholic church can put on a good ritual when they do it right. You know? <laughs> could put on a good ritual. Uh, my, uncle became, my uncle became a deacon some years back and uh, I can remember going back and going to the ceremony and it was like touching, you know, it meant a lot to him, mm-hmm. you know. On the other hand, of course, there were problems in this organization all the way back to when I was a kid. Justin and I were talking about this and, and there were like abusive priests that like ran through the parish, you know, in my town, you know, mm. that we had like kind of direct encounters with, unfortunately. I, like, um, I mean, that kind of thing was happening. There was one priest who would come over to visit my grandma, but then he'd be giving my brother and I hugs and he invited my brother to go off on my brother's six years younger than me. He invited my brother to go off on some kind of like retreat out in the woods to a cabin. And my brother was like, no, I'm not going on some retreat in the woods, to the cabin, you got your mind, even as a 10 year old. So there was that problem that I think you can't not talk about whenever those issues come up. I don't think that was like, I mean, obviously I 
you could tell something fishy was going on. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing in the end that maybe led me out of that, as you and I have talked about it, I found a lot of like very beautiful, empowering things and sort of like uh, the philosophy that's associated with Jesus, you know? So I was never like anti-Christian exactly, but there was this feeling like, obviously this wasn't going to work for me, you know? Like that was pretty clear. And it had a lot to do, I think, with like how I thought about relationships, how I thought about sexuality, how I thought that fit into spirituality. And I thought, well, this is just different. Like this isn't going to work, you know? Um, And probably led me more to thinking about things that had a different attitude towards how those things fit together. Love, spirituality, sexuality, fit into spirituality. I think something in the Tantras made more sense to me. Mm-hmm. But it took a bit to get there. Um, uh, so ultimately, I guess, as we look at it, you know, I kind of tried to frame where I was when I was younger. But I think in the end, the first thing that happened to me was I was getting this psych degree and then I wanted to learn about Zen. That really captured my imagination. Mm. Probably because it was contrarian. <laughs> mm. You know, there's some famous Zen quotes like, if you meet uh, the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. What does that mean? It means that you kind of go to the heart of things. You don't let the the surface levels of the teachings kind of dominate your mind. You try to get to the core of things. They also say in that same quote, if you meet your parents on the road, kill your parents. If you meet you know, your teachers on the road, kill your teachers. And I think I heard that and I was like, shit, that's saying something to me. You know, Cause I sort of realized you had to find your own way, right? Not that you couldn't learn from those people. You know, I don't think the attitude is that you don't learn from the Buddha or your parents or your teachers but you have to find the core of who you are. <laughs> so then do you like capture them and then steal the information from them and then kill them? I mean, how do you learn from them if you're murdering them on site? Well, obviously, and Daniel, this is called an allegory or a metaphor. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely called a metaphor. It <laughs> wasn't like there were bands of Buddhists running amok with uh, machetes to like hack up their loved ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of spoke to me. And I ended up training in... Um, uh, with a, a pretty great Zen master, I'm very authentic. Um, uh, so I got into a Zen school that was only partially based, based out of Chicago. The main, the main organization is based out of Hawaii, but it was a kind of a strong center in Chicago. And I got kind of lucky with that. At a certain point, and I realized this was important to me. I had my psych degree, but I found myself getting more interested in this, this Zen thing. I started seeking out places that I thought had high quality training, I suppose. And I looked at different places in Chicago and I was like, well, they're okay. And then I happened to find this one and it was like a very fortuitous thing for me. Not that I would spend my whole life doing that kind of training, but it like made an impact on me. It kind of set a, a, a foundation for my kind of like spiritual life going forward. And it was uh, Hosokawa Roshi was the teacher. Uh, he's actually like a descendant of this very famous Zen master named Dogen. Um, and uh, the school, I got really lucky because it was a Zen school, but it was also very Taoist. It was very open, right? Uh, so it wasn't just like Buddhist ideas, but there were Taoist ideas in it. There were Chinese medical ideas in it. And so that was a really like a lucky experience. Um, they had some really great body work going on. They were doing therapeutic body work under a guy named William, uh, William Lay, nicknamed Dub, Dub Lay. Sounds like, like some Jamaican guy from like back in the day, <laughs> with Bob Marley or something. But um, so he was kind of a great teacher and Hosokawa Rossi was a really great Zen master and the organization had a lot of really good people in Chicago. I had mentors and things that kind of helped me out. So that was sort of like the foundation of this. In the end, it was kind of like a samurai based school and it probably wasn't right for me in the end. It wasn't, it wasn't totally fit, but it did a lot of good for me. And I did a lot of retreats in my twenties just to build this up. And then eventually I met my uh, Chinese teacher, uh, Master Shengli Wong 
who became kind of my medical mentor and then also kind of a meditation and spiritual mentor for me too. And again, it was a little bit more Taoist. So that kind of built on those experiences. But I was trying, I guess, to learn from different people. I was actually studying Kabbalah with uh, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Grunman. Um, I was just trying to learn everything I could about this. And I think ultimately, eventually a transition to me kind of like, I think my main path probably now and the way I am at this point in my life is sort of in the Buddhist Tantras. It took a bit to get there, but um, that's kind of the culmination of my set of experiences in this way, you know? But I think I still feel like the Zen thing. I still feel the Kabbalistic thing. I still feel all those things there, which I think has an impact on what we're trying to do in this show, right? And then I think the other part was like trying to find a professional life, which certainly you and I talk a lot too. Almost at every interview, we say, well, how do you find your way professionally in this world? We did it in the Guy Newland episode. Another plug, Another plug. <laughs> for an upcoming episode where we kind of talked to him, you know, how did you find your way professionally to where you're at? Which is a big deal now, right? And so for me, I think I had my psych degree, but I knew I wanted to try to work with people. I wanted to try to help people. And then, you know, the fusing of sort of the Asian culture Taoism, Chinese medical part came together very nicely. And ultimately I ended up working in uh, hospitals. So I worked at a place called Ingalls Hospital, which is part of the University of Chicago system of hospitals. I did public health, which was kind of like an interesting kind of thing to end with, because I think it was tied into my wanting to help people who I think had been given a raw deal, right? Um, so it was all HIV and AIDS patients and um, but it was people really from around the world. Um, you know, there were obviously gay male patients, but there were patients who were male and female patients who were from all different parts of the world who I got to treat. One of the patients was uh, like his mother was one of Nelson Mandela's teachers back in South Africa. Hmm. And that was really interesting. And he kind of told me stories of his life. He had like a, a gunshot wound at the point kidney three, the acupuncture point kidney three. So I was going to go needle it. It's right kind of by the ankle bone on the inside, you know. And um, there was like just this huge wound, scar tissue. And we started talking and he said he was fleeing, you know, uh, and got shot, you know, was being shot at, got shot in the ankle. He was like fleeing in the Swaziland. He was trying to escape South Africa. So yeah, you get to meet all kinds of like people with, um, you know, um, really deep and fascinating lives and stories, mm -hmm. right? Which I think we try to like, are trying to do on this show share the stories of people, right? And, um, and so that was a big part of my life too, working in this public health setting and then ultimately teaching. You know? So there's a couple of schools in Chicago that teach uh, Chinese medicine and I work at, uh, there's three of them, I work at two of them. <laughs> I just realized teaching was something I really enjoyed. There's, so, there's four of them. Oh, there's, oh shit, dude, you're right. There's four of them now. I'm like underselling it. Yeah, 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 there's four of them. <laughs> Cause I'm like, yeah, there's four of them now. I work at half of them, I guess then. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, re reduce your percentage from two thirds yeah, to, to one half. half. I'm not at 66 point, whatever, but um, yeah. So uh, I think that like, you know, I, you and I have talked about this a lot. I think it was working with patients is, was uh, certainly is a rewarding thing and formed a rewarding initial part of my professional life as I tried to find my way mm. in this crazy world we call America. Um, but, um, I think ultimately teaching was, I started to realize, well, I want to be able to like at least share ideas with people too, in a way that's a little bit different than just doing medicine. Though I tried to make my, my medical practice kind of psychological. I tried to understand my patients, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. and develop real, like deeper relationships with them. 
but it was also like eventually I, I, I was feeling like, you know, I was doing all the spiritual practice and I wanted to try to share some of like my experiences and, you know, thoughts about this. And eventually I think what led us to do this even, right? But I think for me, it started off in the classroom. So I work at the place called, I can't know which one to say first. I work at the place called Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. I work at a place called National University of Health Sciences. I can say that in reverse way now too. I work at a place called National University of Health Sciences. I work at a place called Pacific College or Pacific it, College. It's changed their name. It's Pacific College, College of, Health of Health and Sciences now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in any case, you know, I work at these places and teaching for a bit. Um, and I think it was like, you know, uh, something that Daniel and I both have felt for a long time. We want to like not only treat patients, but want to get out there and try to share ideas with people. All right, I think that's the TMI. I don't know what else people could want to know about me. <laughs> I think that's it, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. really, I think that's good. I think that that worked. I think I didn't realize how vulnerable you were going to be, but that was a deep dive. That was a deep that, psychological dive. I was like, when I was thinking about doing that, I thought, well, you know, uh, you know, we're trying to have a, 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 a whole thing here where we share of ourselves and, hopefully other people find things that are meaningful when you share stories. Like we were talking about the very beginning of this whole, this whole part of the conversation, right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. my part of this episode. Right. And so I thought, well, okay, let me, let me go for it. Yeah, I'm a psych, I'm a psych, psych background person. I've worked with patients. Let's like, look at the things that maybe add up to what makes a human being who they are and how you try to solve problems. Cause I think, you know, that's what we're trying to do in the show, man. We're trying to help people write their own myths and live their own ways. So yeah, like it shows we've been through it. Right. I think yeah, we've that, been that, through our journeys, right? Yes. We're yes. all working on it and we're trying to do it. So yeah. if you're listening, like you're trying to do it, we're trying to do it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I thought, a, I thought man, point. like maybe there's something like, you know, we all have our obstacles. And I when I look back, I was like, yeah, the shit, there's some obstacles there for no doubt. But you know, you can kind of like you really can transcend things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's possible. You know, and I, I definitely feel like my life got significantly transcendent once I started doing Zen. I started like really the psychology part and the spirituality part coming together was a big deal for me and kind of helped me like write the things that I think were, that were things I was carrying in from my past for sure. That was luggage, you know, that I was carrying and also kind of gave me this, you know, um, yeah, this, uh, this opportunity to really work on myself in a deep way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you, you put it all together very logically, very nicely. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I could, I could tell that I could see the, uh, the organization. The I could see the organizational skills coming through. You know, putting it all in order. That's a Tibetan Buddhist thing too, right? You go yeah. from point A to point Z. <laughs> right. <laughs> Logical steps. <laughs> Logical steps. That's Sankapa. Thank you, Sankapa. Mm -hmm. Founder of the school of the Dalai Lama. So how you do this shit? Order your mind up, man. Yeah. yeah. But like, I know it gets to something about like looking at the things that influenced you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, well, it's becoming conscious of a process that's happening. So you could either pay attention to it or just get rolled over by it. You know, it's a trip. Yeah, you know, when you do that kind of a thing is you start realizing like the things that were occurring to me when I was in that window of 10 to 14 for all of us, the thing that occurs to you in that window, you probably carry into your adult life. You know what I mean? Oh, without really a doubt. Kind of a trip. You like, you're like, there's realizations you have when you're 12 where you like, I was like, that's still true now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I still think that way. And maybe even more so. That's a trip to see. Yeah, yeah. well, those those seeds that that are that are planted at the at those times are deep, man. Yeah. You know, they're really deep and they're not, they're sort of out of context. 
And so it's like, you're just being curious, you know, experiencing whatever it is that you're experiencing. And then it's just like, pow, a lightning bolt hits you. And you're like, oh, whoa, what's that? Yeah, that thing of like going like, man, I think the adult world is fucked up. And the realizing like, yeah, that sentence is still in my head. I still think the adult world's fucked up. That was kind of like, damn, I still think that way. <laughs> at least when, at least yeah. at that point, you, you didn't have any hand in it, you know? <laughs> Well, I don't know how much hand I have in it now either still, you know, we're all doing the best we can, but doing some, the best of we can, yeah. are, some of these forces are, you know, hard for us to totally turn the ship around, right? Agreed. But we're doing the best we can. We do, we do all what right. we can. Should we, flip this? Should we flip this script? You ready to kind of do your side of this deal? We will in a moment. But for right now, uh, I wanted to say thank you, Eric, for sharing. And for Eric, this is Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Gin and Tantra. We'll catch you in the next one. Peace.